Welcome to Take Your Stand, the podcast of Here I Stand Ministries. I'm your host, Luke Seibert. Let's explore more of what it means to live out the gospel by clinging to the Word and to one another. Welcome back. I'm excited to jump this week into a new category of translations, uh, those translations that are from the critical text. That can that can sound negative, but it just means that they incorporate the other manuscripts that have been discovered uh, since 1611, and that include the other text types, the, the Alexandrian, the Syriac, the Western, uh, and combine all of those uh, and make, make use of all of them to make the best translations that we have available to us. What we're going to talk about this week is the, the Revised Standard Version. It's a little bit of an older translation, and uh, first published in 1952. It's not a real popular one. I, I don't think that's being used as primary reading material, as, prim- as a primary translation, but it is often referenced a lot, so I thought I would go ahead and, and do an episode on this. It's a fairly literal translation, and we'll get into some more about the text here in a moment, but first wanted to talk about how uh, this translation came to be and what's it trying to do. The Revised Standard Version, the RSV, is an authorized revision of the American Standard Version published in 1901, which was a revision of the King James Version published in 1611. And that was from the the preface to the updated New Testament of the RSV in uh, 1971. So, yeah, published in, in 1952, uh, one of the revisions was in uh, 1971, but um, that was their goal, was to honor the the um, heritage of the King James and to, to take that translation and to update it, and update it in, in two ways. One, by making use of manuscripts that have been discovered since 1611, and also updating the, the language more into the language that we speak t- uh, today. But one thing that they talk about in the preface, that 1971 a preface that I talk, mentioned a minute ago, what they talked about, what they tried to do, was not tie the language so closely to their own day that it wasn't, it wouldn't be relevant for for later times. So that they wanted to make a transla- an enduring a translation. And well, one way they they did that was updating a lot of the archaic language. Some of it is still there, and some of the the words, maybe even some of the sentence structure, but as a whole, they they did a pretty good job with bringing the language of the King James into more of how we speak today. One thing they did not change, though, was when it comes to prayers and how the people address God. There's a second second person of pronouns that when the the individuals in Scripture when they are addressing addressing each other or addressing the audience. They use your, you, those words. When they're talking to God, they still use thee, thou, thy, those older uh, pronouns. And, you know, I can, I can understand that, uh, the desire for, for reverence, to, to honor God, show him as holy. Um, I know some people who, who pray like that today. And that was initially one thing that, that drew me to a particular translation. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that next week. Lord willing, but uh, I said I can, can understand that. Uh, don't agree with it, and I'll get into that here uh, shortly in the podcast, uh, talking about that. But um, that's an element about the, about the text. So you know it's, it is updated, but it still has a little bit of the archaic language, uh, specifically when it comes to prayers. 
in terms of a theological bent, um, I haven't noticed oh, very much uh, like a liberal bending or anything like that. It is often referenced in a lot of works. Uh, good, good men have, have referenced it, the RSV, as like as a reference type work. As I was looking at several different passages and reading up for this preparer for the podcast, there, there was one that caused me uh, some hesitation, a little bit of concern, though. First uh, John 5, 1 there's an analogy that's being given and the analogy is a child father relationship and that's how most translate uh, the translations i looked up render that render it child and father the rsv renders it child and parent now it's not addressing god it's not directly talking about god it's more of giving it an analogy but it did give me pause that it chose parent instead of father again this is in an older translation um and so i was wondering why did they do that so i began looking at some other passages where i thought they might use more of a gender neutral uh, term referring to for forefather i did not notice other places where they had done it but uh, you know i haven't read through you know the whole new testament or an entire book so just something to be aware of if you do go to to use this um a translation uh just be aware of that and uh just be watching for it. But overall, I think the RSV is a good translation to use as a reference work. It's it's not one that I would recommend for personal use or a daily use or a primary translation, but to we want it it would be a translation that we could use to try to gain a better understanding of how uh, Greek words or Hebrew words have been variously translated. Um, and I talked about that, you know, when we're studying a passage it's good to sometimes compare different translations with one another. Uh, the RSV is an example of that. There are two reasons why I don't recommend this for as a primary translation. Uh, one, I talked about not sure about maybe some of the theological uh, leanings, uh, some of the choices of particular words. The other one has to do with the archaic language. And while, I, as I said, I do understand the desire for reverence. To, to honor God with using these and thous. And on the surface level, it does seem to do that. Yet I feel like it also sends a subtle message that God is separate from our lives, separate from the way that we live today, that we uh, live our lives in a particular way using a particular form of, our, of the English language uh, with talking with one another and every other aspect of our life. But when it comes to us relating to God, then we have to remove ourselves to this older form of the language to this way that we don't even speak today, and that's how we properly address God. It, it subtly sends this message that we compartmentalize God. And I'm not saying that people who do that intentionally choose it for that reason, but that's the message that is being presented. I'm not saying that we need to we should be flippant with the Lord, not at all. We should still honor him, still be reverent with our choice of words and how we choose to address him. But we don't need to choose an entirely different vocabulary. Uh, not entirely different vocabulary, but ent entirely different way of speaking uh, to him. That That's not how God has even revealed himself through scripture. That uh, when we look at how he, uh, how he moved scripture to be written and how people to address him, it was using the way that they spoke in daily life. Again, not flippant. It was still reverent in that vocabulary, in that language they used, but it wasn't entirely separate. So... That's one of the drawbacks I do see to the RSV. But again, it can be a good work to use as a reference. Uh, other people have 
and it can be something good to kind of add to an arsenal or something to, to reference at times. When I opened this podcast, this 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 episode, I talked about how the RSV is an example of the critical text translations, and it, it's somewhat of a trans transition form, is that it has a, a great honor and respect for the King James, sort of a third generation revision of it, but it still uses manuscripts that have been discovered since then. And so it still falls into the critical text translation category. Some people would object to critical tr text translations at all. The, maybe another way of referring to critical text translations is modern translations. Yeah, the, the New King James and the modern English version are contemporary versions, but they still use that Texas Receptus, the same base text that the King James did. So they don't necessarily have the same object, all the same objections that uh, modern translations in terms of ones like the ESV, uh, NIV, New American Standard, ones like that received. One of the issues that is launched against those translations is that they seem to take verses out of Scripture. On the surface level, it seems to be true. When we read the King James or the New King James or MEV, there are certain verses or parts of verses that are there that are not in the modern translations. First uh, John 5, 7 is a as a favorite example, where it says, There are three that testify in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. And the key there is that it's a, it's a single verse that contains all three members of the Trinity and says they are one. That's the only verse in the Bible that says that in a single verse. And modern translations don't have it. And so the accusation is, see, these modern translations, they're, they're doctrinally compromised. They're trying to cover up the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, there's a couple <laughs> responses to that. First off, that's not the only place we see the members of the Trinity grouped together. Matthew 28:19, the where Jesus commands us to baptize in the name, implying the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not separate. They're all one. Paul and so and like places like Second Corinthians thirteen, again groups the members of the Trinity together, all three of them, and so we do not need First John five seven to come to the conclusion that we serve one God, and that He has revealed Himself in three persons at the same time, and um, <clears throat> we don't need First John five seven, and so we're not doctrinally compromising. We haven't we have not removed all these other references to the Trinity, that. We still had that. The issue is that we're asking is, was that verse or that part of verse there to begin with? And you know, on even a bigger level, the argument about single verses is really anachronistic because verses were not there to begin with. That verse, our modern chapter and verse divisions were introduced in between 1200 and uh, 1555. That you know, over a thousand years after the New Testament was written, that uh, we do not have our modern chapter and verse divisions. So to say that we need these certain words or certain phrasing in particular in a single verse or in a phrase of verse uh, is really ignoring the, the vast majority of history of the Bible, a large portion of the history of the Bible that we have. And again, the question comes back to: Were those verses or were those parts of verses there to begin with? We're not arguing about the doctrine. That that doc we have we have not lost no doctrine by going back to the older manuscripts and looking at what was originally part of the Bible, what was added in <clears throat> over time. And just give a few examples 
about this. When we read these contested verses or passages, uh, when we look at the context, we see that we have lost nothing, really. That <clears throat> it's uh, some people try to make a bigger issue than what is really going on. Uh, here's a couple examples. In John 3.13, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and trying to explain about the new birth. And Nicodemus is just at a loss, not understanding how this can be. And Jesus is kind of saying, "Are you?" and Jesus tells him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And then he goes on to talk about, if you don't understand these, uh, paraphrasing a little bit, he says, if you don't understand these earthly things, how will you understand if I tell you the higher things, the heavenly things? And then in 1 John uh, 3.13, it says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, the King James adds, which is in heaven. And so the accusation is because modern translations don't have that final phrase, which is in heaven, that we're denying or downplaying the doctrine of the omnipresence of Christ. Not at all. We're not. When we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see that Christ is omnipresent. We um, are not denying that doctrine at all. We're just saying that phrase was not originally there to begin with. And contextually, it interrupts Jesus' argument of what he's saying. That what, if you look at 13 and then 14 and 15, what he's saying is, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. He's not trying to teach about his omnipresence. He's trying to say that he can perfectly reveal the Father because he came from heaven. And he, the reason he came was to give his life as a sacrifice, which was a picture or a sim, or, or which was pictured by Moses lifting the serpent in the wilderness. That was a type or symbol of what Christ was coming to do. So to in the middle of that throw, the fact that Jesus is uh, omnipresent uh, interrupts that argument and, and distracts from what Jesus is trying to say. So as I say, when we look at that, we see what was really going on. Uh, what Jesus' argument was, we're not denying the doctrine. Other places of Scripture teach us that Christ is omnipresent. Another favorite example is Colossians 1.14, which says, talking about Christ, and it says, and through him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's how uh, modern translations render it. Now, the, the King James will say, in him we have redemption uh, through his blood. And because modern translations don't have it, uh, the accusation is that we're trying to deny that we are saved by the blood of Christ, that we just have redemption in general, but we don't, are not told, uh, we're not being taught how how we have that redemption, that it took Christ's death. That is entirely wrong, because if you look over to Ephesians 1.7, it's almost an exact parallel verse, but set in the modern translations, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. That that phrase is present in Ephesians 1.7, all the modern translations are doing, we're saying, when we look at the manuscript evidence, that phrase, through his blood, is not present in Colossians 1.14. We're not denying that it was Christ's blood that saved us. We're just saying, what does scripture originally say? And when you look at the rest of Colossians, even especially when you get into like chapter 2, uh, we or even in chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2, all of Colossians, it, it shows that we it took Christ's death. To save us that we need christ alone not christ in philosophy not christ in the law christ's death alone is what saves us we lose nothing 
we're just going back and saying what did the tech what did the bible originally say so there's a lot of other examples uh gospel of john has several uh examples there but you know acts other places as well that gives you a taste of, of what's going on and just wanted to, to point out that we need to talk about what are the real issues that the issue is not whether modern translations are cutting out doctrine or not it the question is were those verses or were those phrases of verses there to begin with uh, sometimes it can be made into a bigger argument than what's really going on, but that's really the issue that is happening. So yeah, it's about the RSV. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll get into the New American Standard, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into that one and some other upcoming ones as well. But uh, before we close out, I wanted to do a review of a book, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I just recently finished this up. It was a really thought-provoking and an encouraging and edifying book. That really what the book centers around this a concept of not just knowing concepts about God, but truly knowing God personally, to knowing him in, in, in relationship. And he just Packer goes into several aspects of that and, and different aspects of doctrine and really trying to help us engage and to, to seek the Lord from the heart. And he provides a good, a good uh, model for meditation. That he'll bring up a certain subject and the thought my thought sometimes i'm reading like oh yeah i know about that but then when he starts going through there and explaining let's, let's tear this apart let's really see what are the implications what does this really mean in all its aspects it really helps you to learn how to take a, a part of scripture a theme in scripture or even a verse and really dissect it and really learn to meditate so it's it was a really encouraging book. I've heard it referenced a lot of different times and thought it was time to go ahead and read it. And uh, was was greatly encouraged and um, challenged by it. And uh, the, his illustrations that he uses, they're easily understandable. Um, he is uh, Canadian, I, I believe. So some of the, some of the uh, illustrations do have uh, that kind of a context in mind, some of his experience there. But overall, you know, they're, they're easily to be able to be understood and pictured and help explain his concepts. So, yeah, this is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a great book. It's something to, to read and to reflect on. Uh, it may be a little bit slower to go through because it's one you have you want to engage mentally with, not just rush through. But um, it was an encouraging book, and, and people recommend, uh, people are looking for good literature about, about reading and seeking to, to know God more, not just gaining head knowledge about him, but truly knowing him. Uh, this would be helpful in that. It's not the only way to know God, not at all, but it, it does help us uh, understand more of what does that actually mean. So again, that, that was Knowing God by J.A. Packer. I appreciate people listening to the podcast and uh, bearing with me on some of my rabbit trails that I go down sometimes. Try to work on not going into so many of those. But uh, again, appreciate people listening to the podcast. And until next time, read the word and take your stand. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope it was an encouragement and a blessing. To find out more information about Here I Stand Ministries, check out hisministries.com. Scripture quotations are from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, copyright 1971-1995 by the Lockman Foundation, used by permission, all rights reserved.